Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt. Hello. And Emily Benita. Hi Emily. Oh hello there. How are we all today? Yeah, I'm alright. Are um, you Are you though Matt? Are you? Yeah, I am. I have, dear listeners, been recently bitten by a dog and have had my finger broken and I'm bloody soldiering on regardless because the the dog, I'm sure, was a good boy deep down. Mm. And I have learned the valuable lesson about face of dog, finger of man, interface <laughs> problems. Um, and I won't be making that mistake again, because, you know, I, in fact, I have been bitten by a dog before. <laughs> um, so this is the second time around, but I, I've definitely learned my lesson this time. Mm. Dogs can bite you. You say you're soldiering on, but it, it seems less impressive when people know that you didn't realise you'd broken your finger until several days after it happened. Oh, yeah, a solid a solid week after it happened. <laughs> and when I say soldiering on as well, I've complained about it constantly, mm. mentioned it like every other sentence, even to like strangers. <laughs> the only person I haven't mentioned it to is the owner of the dog, because I feel too, I feel bad for the dog. Mm. Um, how terribly British. So, but there you go. That's, that's yeah. really all I've been doing is being, you know... Um, I've, I've come a cropper um, at the hands of a canine fiend. <laughs> Who we are assured is actually a good boy. Yeah, a very good boy somewhere. Has anyone actually, like, has anyone seen that new Netflix show about dogs called Dogs? Mm, no. I, I don't feel like I am emotionally prepared to watch a show. I'm, I'm assured that nothing bad happens to any of the dogs, but still, mm. it just feels like it'd be a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for someone who's about to—I mean—and this this finger biting incident comes at a very unfortunate time because I'm thinking about getting a dog, Ooh. and you know, at this time, I know I'm not sure. I don't know if I can trust him. Might have to go back to the old cat plan because <laughs> 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 you know where you stand with a cat, which is you don't know where you stand, <laughs> mm. which is great. You, at least you know it's going to be shifty the whole time. That dog, I thought he was all right, and then he turned on me. The cat—that will fucking turn on you from day one. Mm. I'd never. I'd never try to pat a cat. It would bite me straight away. But, you know, we live amongst our animal friends and we try and learn from them. And that's all we can do. <laughs> this is you sounding all sage from playing the cowboy game. This, yeah, is, this become, is that Wild oh, West I'm wisdom. Happy, I'm happy to pat the dogs in Red Dead Redemption because mm. so far I've not been bitten by a dog. I mean, I've, bitten by, I've been bitten by a lot of animals. I've been attacked by a pig. Uh, that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, it's it's fairly low low stakes, um, and I'll just respawn somewhere else. My finger's not going to respawn. Mm, not bloody salamander. salamander. <laughs> Gee, what, what's this show about again? <laughs> it's about movies, I think, <laughs> yeah. uh, and television. And we'll we'll kind of in that spirit, we'll move on to this week's news, in which we will talk about some of the stuff that's kind of leapt up to us this week. It was a fairly busy week. I think it started off with um, I think a trio of very important videos that all mm-hmm. hit the internet at more or less the same time. It was very like the day when Billy Wilder, Milton Berle and Dudley Moore all died. It kind of felt like, whoa, I'm getting whiplash from what I have to focus on. But we got a trailer for Toy Story 4, which introduces to the character of Forky, mm-hmm. who everyone seems very divided on, particularly because the philosophical con- uh, ramifications of the idea that you can make anything into a sentient toy just if you believe in it enough. <laughs> um <laughs> 
it's, it raises some real considerable questions. We then also got the trailer for Detective Pikachu, much to the bafflement of Matt, which mm. uh, I found very delightful. <laughs> uh, so before uh, and the third one we'll 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 go on to in a second but uh just what what did we think of those two trailers uh, of the toy story 4 one and the detective pikachu one i have no idea who toy story 4 is for hmm. that was the thing that i got from that you know you've got this kind of all of the characters in a very slow ring a ring a circle it's all very 70s and blissed out and then we see Forky arrive horrified because he doesn't want to be a toy. He has a he has a function, and who is I? I don't I don't. Well, he's a he's he's a spork with a pipe cleaner. And but the thing is, I don't I don't get it. Toy Story three right was from me. I remember mm. turning up to the IMAX at the National Media Center in Bradford, so ready to see it, and. I was in the audience with my then boyfriend and a sea of children dressed up as the various characters. And I felt like a veteran. I was like, you weren't there, man. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know what it was like. And Toy Story 3 for me was an incredibly adult film because it felt like it was made for people like me who watched the first one when they were a child. And now, you know, and, and that was it. I was done with that. I was like, fine, hand on the toys, Andy give them to the to the younger generation and I thought that was a really beautiful way to finish it but now it's like who do the toys belong to what is Forky's existential crisis who is who is that for like I'm I'm sitting there being like I didn't ask for this I don't need this and it's certainly not for kids from this advert anyway so I don't mm. know. I fear that we're moving into something that's a little bit too ironic for its own good. Mm. Mm. And for, for a trilogy, and we've talked about trilogies before, haven't we, Ed, that they mm. so rarely stick the landing. And Toy Story 3 not only kind of provides a satisfying emotional closure to the series, but like a logical one as well. It seems mm. to fit. And when I say satisfying, every time I watch it, I am reduced to a blubbering wreck, which is just just embarrassing. Like the last time it was on TV, I didn't even see it. I was in the kitchen cooking. I just heard it. And I just burst into tears whilst hearing it because it's so bloody sad and so horrible, but yet so fitting that, you know, I can't be anything other than just like a puddle of my own tears on the floor. So I don't really think I want a fourth installment either no matter who plays the fork to me it seems like it may be made for the people who are fans of the various tv specials that they've made since because mm. they did the toy story uh of terror i think it was called which was the halloween one they've done all these little shorts featuring all the characters in the subsequent years and i guess it's kind of building upon the audience for that and kind of maybe embracing the fact that the characters have moved into they have moved beyond the constraints of the original trilogy, in a sense. Like, they are that that was its own little story, and now they're off doing these kind of little extra things, and the little extra thing in this one is a whole feature-length movie. Uh, I'm, even though Pixar are very hit and miss these days for me, I still like more of their films than I dislike them, and I think I am cautiously optimistic to see what they do with this one because there are so many things about it that are strange, Mm-hmm. that it kind of makes me think if it's this weird then there must be something 
driving it to get made. Like they, they must have felt they had a really interesting take on this material to have decided to do this. So I am, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but I don't have the same sense of giddy excitement that I had when, you know, when Toy Story 3 was coming out and when I got to watch it in the cinema tent at Glastonbury in 2010 and, yeah, cried very openly, but that was a mixture of the movie and just being very, very hungover. <laughs> it's not a movie to watch in that delicate estate, has to be said. Mm. Detective Pikachu, I think, Matt, you, I think you probably are the one to talk about this <laughs> as someone who has literally no idea what the hell is going on <laughs> with Pokemon. Mm. Yeah, to fill our listeners in, I have like zero understanding of Pokemon, and the more people explain it to me, the less I understand. Mm-hmm. I am open to most things, <laughs> but Pokemon just seems to leave me baffled. I don't know what it is. I don't know who it's for. I don't know why people like it. I'm too old for it. It's confusing. I feel a bit like John Travolta wandering into uh, Uma Thurman's house uh, <laughs> off my tits on heroin, not knowing where the intercom is because I'm confused. I, think- I don't know what is happening in that trailer. Um, everyone seems very excited about it. People are upset that suddenly things are furry when they thought they were just not furry. But then I'm kind of, I'm more interested in that debate. Did people think they were just kind of like pulsating balls of skin well, rather than fur? <laughs> well, and, uh, <laughs> which is just even more horrifying. I don't know what's going on. Well, this is the issue um, from, from hmm. moving from a two-dimensional cartoon, which we'd all grown up well a few of us have grown up with i certainly grew up with yeah. and uh yeah. i think the basic assumption was that if if the outline if the black outline was in any way pointed that indicated fur mm-hmm. if it was smooth then i think ed as you put it we would assume it's the texture of a seal um mm. so to suddenly discover that pikachu is furry was quite the uh, uncanny valley sort of shock Although I have to put it to you, Ed, uh, in our super cool shot reverse shot WhatsApp group chat, Ed mm-hmm. did the valiant job of trying to explain to Matt what Pokemon <laughs> was. And I think it's yeah. my favourite description of it ever, which is kind of like cute fantasy dogfighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in which in which our hero is occasionally assaulted by incompetent fascists. <laughs> in matching jumpsuits and they have a Siamese cat. Yeah, and they rhyme for some reason they have to talk in rhyme and are always foiled if only real life were the same yeah Mm. the furry seal debate a lot of people like oh this is why pokemon shouldn't have been made real i hate to break it to you they're still not real (laughs) (laughs) yeah that would be a hell of an advancement in in the technology that's been used to make detective pikachu like it's gone far beyond who framed roger rabbit which is essentially what it seems to be uh mm. in some way playing on to uh full on by the way we have created these creatures and now they exist mm. in your world um, i think if you've got the technology to do that mm-hmm. you're probably wasting your time making a pokemon movie <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah at least give us dinosaurs first yeah um, exactly well some of the pokemon well. are dinosaurs oh they're not come on some are there are some that are giant t-rexes that are made of stone and metal I mean, it's it's one thing to say that they're kind of like they're furry when they're not, but to give people an unrealistic idea of paleontological history is just <laughs> it's just it's just it's dumbing down the it's a crime. Yeah, it's a crime against everything. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think part of my thing is 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 I understand. Am I right in thinking it was a cartoon? It was right? a game. It was well, what was it? What was it first? 
card it, game. It, the entire Pokemon franchise started with the Game Boy game. A Game Boy became, game. Uh, then became uh, a very popular anime. Okay. Because I don't know where the, the, the genesis of Pokemon is. Therefore, every and because it's now everything. <laughs> it's now everything, right? It's like yeah. a, a video, lots of video games, card games. It's, you know, like cartoons, it's movies, it's other things that have spun off it. I'm now kind of desperately trying to go, oh, well, what is this? And this kind of weird nebulous Japanese thing that's surrounding me and I don't understand what it is. And everyone I know likes it. And I'm like, how did I not know about this? Mm-hmm. I, did, did I just have a blackout in like 96 <laughs> or whatever? I mean, that is... Pro- I was 15 then, so possibly that did happen. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just something I missed and now I can't recover. Uh, and now Ryan Reynolds is voicing it. And, mm. and yeah, I kind of watched it and I was like, oh man, this is... It was it was confusing enough anyway, and now it's even more confusing. And I don't know whether to just you know give into it or resist it even more. And I feel like I'm I'm a torn man. I'm I'm like Natalie and Brulia in that sense, mm. yeah. which is another excellent mid '90s reference. I think the thing that really bothers me is is Reynolds. Like mm. of all the voices that you could have chosen for Detective Pikachu, it's it's a white man. But a white man who has plenty. He's got Deadpool. He's got a franchise. Yeah. And I don't know whether this is him realising, oh, I'm a father and my child can watch none of my films. This is kind of something <laughs> I want I want to happen. But I feel like there could have been so many more like interesting casting choices. Shoot, who who would you have cast? The internet's choice. The, 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 for ages, people joked about it being Danny DeVito. Shot oh, reverse shot, favourite Danny, Danny DeVito. Danny <laughs> DeVito. <laughs> Uh, and, and I would have been well up for that. I think if if they want to go for Pikachu is a kind of cynical detective, then I think there's a lot of there's a lot of material to get there by casting it with Danny DeVito, who mm. at least has a very expressive voice. I think the the main problem, not to sound like Billy West, but the main problem with casting someone like Ryan Reynolds is that his voice there's not anything that's really kind of distinctive or emotive about it in the way that you need a really good voice performer to be it just is him saying the lines in kind of his usual cadence and Mm -hmm. that ends up feeling you end up in the uncanny valley because you're like that voice should not be coming out of that electric rat Mm. (laughs) i have to pop in and be my usual feminist killjoy self have we ever established Mm -hmm. that pikachu is of a gender i mean there, there are multiple Pikachus. Like, there is mm-hmm. the prime Pikachu in the cartoon with that, but I don't remember anyone actually gendering Pikachu. So I would love to have more of lovely Catherine Keener, Catherine <laughs> Keener's voice, I think, as a kind of Cagney and Lacey sort of throwback. I think that would be nice and, mm. you know, just to kind of mix it up a bit. Here's my, here's my suggestion, knowing nothing about the character or the, the the show as we've established previously um tom waits um <laughs> but don't give him any context in the recording booth <laughs> just tell him to go, <laughs> to go in there and play it completely straight and then we'll, then i'll watch it i really want to hear him say bulbasaur <laughs> I think that's, that's a word i never realized i wanted to hear tom waits say <laughs> and our final the final of these three titanic videos that shook the internet to its core was the John Lewis Christmas ad and I I think I'm going to hand this over to Emily who has very very strong feelings about this. As ever because I am also the resident Grinch Mm. I 
am just staggered that this was the choice. For anyone who has not seen the John Lewis advert, it essentially involves the actual Elton John at mm-hmm. what appears to be um, a very cosy Christmas scene alone with a piano. And as he plays your song, we go through the ages of Elton in reverse, back to little babby Reg Dwight, where his his adoring mother uh, has bought him a piano for Christmas. And the tagline is, you know, some gifts are more than just gifts. Playing ever so nicely on gift meaning God-given talent and gift meaning something you give to someone else. And it's just it's just so horribly consumerist. I think John Lewis have been getting a lot of bad feedback and, and kind of snark from yours truly uh, included, particularly around the most recent ad where they had Bohemian Rhapsody with the kids to announce this whole new like business partnership thing. It was John Lewis and partners now and Waitrose and partners. So they've moved away from what, you know, that Bohemian Rhapsody ad could have just as well been a Christmas ad for John Lewis a couple of years ago. And the idea was, um, oh, it's incredibly emotionally raw. It's going to make everyone cry. It'll normally have a cover of a more popular song with ethereal female vocals. And I just find this really consumerist and, and, I don't know whether it's actually more a kind of tie-in with Rocket Man, which I can't wait for because mm. Taron Egerton and big glasses equals cinematic delight. That was the mm-hmm. problem with Robin Hood. No eyewear. Like get get the optical, get the optics, and then and then you're grand. It it just it just feels really of all the people to celebrate. Don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of Elton John, but but why? Why? I don't mm. I don't really get it. And I think part of what they wanted to do was this whole Elton John Lewis thing, which no one asked for or was thinking <laughs> of, but it's not unexpected unexpected. And the comedy writer John Harvey actually made the point on Twitter that John Lewis does not sell pianos. <laughs> which has then sparked off the most passive aggressive yet polite customer services and PR response from John Lewis trying to explain Mm. that they have electronic keyboards (laughs) (laughs) which to me just sums it all up really it's it's contrived it's pretentious it doesn't speak to the wider world in what's going on just now um Mm. why are we nothing again nothing against elton john he's got some absolute bangers but like i do not understand why that's what we're focusing on when I'm still reeling from the country tearing itself apart. Mm. Mm. I'm. I watched it just before we went on, and I was. I have to say, I was expecting something worse. I've seen. Mm. There's been more cloying adverts in the past. Um, the the World War One chocolate oh. game oh, from yeah. last year um, was uh, an insult to just about everybody <laughs> at the time. Um, but yes. Um, I kind of think also that that song has lost everything, given that it's now... Do do you remember when they did it for Children in Need with David Beckham? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the end for that song. (laughs) And he didn't cover it, but just lip-syncing it was enough. And since then, I haven't been able to listen to it without thinking of David Beckham. And I like to think of David Beckham sometimes, for my own personal use. Um, but um, 
not singing Elton John. That shit makes it confusing. For for me, like the thing that I find really curious about all the John Lewis adverts is that that kind of has grown up as a tradition since I left the UK. I don't think it was like that's your fault then. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just you wrote a letter us. to the head of the John Lewis advertising department on the day that I got on my flight and just Dear said, hey, John here's Lewis. an idea. Yeah. I, so, so to me, it's always very strange, like watching it from afar and seeing it be become this thing where every year people get really, really excited for it, and then also when it happens, you just watch it and you think, okay, fine, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't care about any of this, <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how it it feels to me. Like you just watch it and you think, what is this? got to do with anything <laughs> this, this feels like such a tremendous waste of money and resources and then you see people like tear like writing about their tear reactions and i'm not here to shame anyone for having an emotional reaction to an advert but you know i just you do kind of look at it and you think you know there's there's so much going on <laughs> like this doesn't seem like the sort of thing people should really be investing mm. so much of their mental and emotional energy in these days or ever mm. But yeah, the, the way you just, decide, just the way you just described that Ed was the way I feel about Pokemon. <laughs> mm. People are excited about it, but I don't know what's happening. Mm. Yeah, there's a nice we, we've nicely covered all three of us <laughs> are covered by the the videos that, that we just talked about this week. <laughs> so we'll move on to some other news now, and of course, one of the biggest news stories that happened over the last couple of days was that Stan Lee passed away. Stan Lee, of course, uh, is a character actor who I think was discovered in the mid-90s by Kevin Smith and put in the movie More Rats. And then he kind of mm. never really broke out as a lead, but he got lots of supporting parts in, in, in bigger movies. And people seem really, really uh, passionate about him as a result. Uh, of course, that's not true. Well, it's partly true. Uh, Stan Lee, of course, created most of modern culture, it seems, uh, as the editor of, of Marvel Comics for many years and who created a lot of their iconic characters in the 60s spider-man fantastic four uh particular you know those are the ones that really pushed marvel to become dominant in the mid 60s uh over dc their kind of distinguished competition as they are as they are known and who since then and then who also promoted himself in a major way to become the face of marvel for a very very long time he did voiceovers for uh, for cartoons he obviously had all of the cameos in the recent movies but also would be featured in some small way in previous adaptations he has always been kind of the face of marvel and that has contributed to a somewhat divisive legacy within the comics industry for him where a lot of people believe that he took credit for work from other people including his collaborators you know famously steve ditko who he co-created spider-man with and he had a major falling out uh, over the fact that he felt that he wasn't getting enough credit. Uh, Jack Kirby, who was one of the defining visionaries behind Marvel for many years, left the company to work for DC over his battles with uh, with Stanley over credit and things like that. So he, he is someone who ha is, is kind of broadly beloved in culture because he created all of these things that have since gone on to be popular movies and TV shows and comics that are still very popular to this day. But also within the industry himself has this much kind of more conflicting and, and conflicted reputation uh and and even you know taking all of that into account it, it does feel as if someone who has who's had a huge impact on particularly the last sort of 15 20 years of culture uh has gone and it's it it, it kind of is a moment to 
reflect upon just the huge impact that he had on on cinema in particular over the last uh, 20 years or so. Yeah, it's it's weird that the the dominant culture right now is superhero movies and they don't exist without him. Mm. And he was a big part of kind of anyone's education in comics really, I suppose. I'm not mm. a comic connoisseur by any means, but you know, when I was kind of in my uh kind of between 10 and 15, I think I probably read um, the X-Men comic used to get it every week and uh, I used to love getting it and then moved on to getting Spider-Man and then, you know, moved on to getting other things and then the through line is Stan Lee. Mm. And then from there you go on and read other things, you read Watchmen or whatever, but that's the gateway. Stan Lee is your introduction to all those things for, for most people anyway, the most accessible but challenging in in, in, in ways um, that you hadn't thought possible but if you read just the Beano or whatever. And yeah he's kind of like moved beyond his status as a creator because he has created a lot and a high standard over many decades. I'm really not a Marvel person or like a comics gal at all. So I got into Marvel in terms of, you know, the first Spider-Man franchise reboot with Tobey Maguire Mm. and very aware of, Stanley in that way and I think in my head Stanley just was Marvel like in the same way that Steve Jobs was Apple like you knew that fundamentally there were so many different people involved but he was just synonymous with that and it's looking back and realizing how actually radical he was in terms of things like Stan's soapbox and that you know captain america is a nazi punching he goes on tour and punches nazis where's that Mm. here today if marvel's everywhere the one bit that we would actually need of it that would make the world (laughs) significantly better places sorely lacking but that was the thing that struck me i didn't realize like actually how radical he was and how he wanted to reflect that in his work but i still I still don't feel beyond that particularly qualified to talk about it because even though I understand he completely changed the media landscape in which I like to uh, swim in, I don't I don't feel that deep sort of emotional connection to him. He's one of those people in the same way that I think it's one of those things where I'm not necessarily inspired by him, but I'm definitely inspired by the people he then influenced and who love mm. him. Like, I look at people like Kevin Smith, for example, like that first line of, uh, and, and, I, and I don't say this in a derogative way, like nerds, basically that first line mm. of nerds who grew up kind of over that era and then who went on to make things that I was then inspired by at the age that they were inspired by Stanley is incredible. So I think I have like a deep reverence for him, even though my knowledge is really quite thin. Hmm. Yeah, he he definitely feels like something of a titanic figure in modern pop culture because he just he created so many things that would go on to be iconic and recognize the world over and he and like like you say like his his more radical approach to working social issues into comics that like you really see that in the early X-Men where you know everyone talks about how they were 
his way of trying to engage with the civil rights movement, you know, by kind of using this allegorical story, which has then kind of influenced how that series has been used over the years. More recently, it's been, and you see that in the the films from the early 2000s, you know, a a story about uh, LGBTQ struggles and things like that. And I think it's really fascinating trying to imagine how different comics would be without him in the sense that he was someone who brought such a keen sense of psychology to his stories like he wasn't necessarily the deepest writer but within the kind of the pulpy confines of comics he did such a good job of creating heroes that were incredible but you know deeply flawed in some way tony stark and his alcoholism uh of you know, being kind of like the the main one or peter parker and his insecurities being you know a teenager who's just trying to live his life but uh people in incredible and strange suits keep showing up to try and kill him you know uh he he was very good at i think taking aspects recognizable aspects of life and blowing them up into this huge operatic sense uh through comics uh and i think that is uh that that has had a kind of a huge impact on the way in which the entire that entire industry functions and subsequently a lot of genre fiction in general which kind of a lot of the people who influenced by him you know subsequently went to work in all of these different industries and who clearly owe a tremendous debt to the work that he did. Our next story was just the other day, the Independent Spirit Awards were announced, the nominees for this year's awards. Uh, the Independent Spirit Awards are generally, I think, the the cool Oscars, I think is probably the best <laughs> way to think of them. They tend to pick smaller, more interesting movies. They tend to have very, very good, funny hosts who are really good at making a uh, a ceremony move along quickly. And they have a pretty fantastic slate this year. Uh, I won't go for all of them, but just in best pe- picture, we have Eighth Grade, First Reformed, If Beale Street Could Talk, Leave No Trace, and You Were Never Really Here. All kind of fairly interesting movies. I, I particularly love First Reformed, even though it's not a movie I'm never sure I am ever sure I'd be able to watch again. <laughs> it, it kind of put me into a into a funk for the better part of a month. Uh, but that's just a testament to its power. Uh, Best Director is a very interesting category. You've got Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace, Barry Jenkins for If Beale Street Could Talk, Tamara Jenkins for Private Life, Lynn Ramsey for You Were Never Really Here, and Paul Schrader for First Reformed. And, of course, the thing that's really interesting about that, other than the fact that they're all really good, solid choices, is you have three women nominated for Best Director, one African-American man, and uh, one one old white guy, just to kind of, like, balance things out. You know, you gotta you got to keep your, your toe in somehow. But that that to me feels pretty uh pretty seismic in terms of a slate of nominees yeah it's all it has been a very uh much a kind of anecdote to the oscars for for several years um now and i i kind of wish it was more of an indicator because people say don't they the the the, the golden globes are the indicator of who's actually going to win. I, I kind mm. of always wish that the Independent Spirit Awards had more of a a kind of say on what was going to do well rather than what would be given a token nomination in the screenplay category, mm. which is kind of generally how it works out. But I always like the Independent Spirit Awards. I like the, the fact that Mulaney and Kroll and hosted. I only saw them host it last year, but they've done it for a few years, haven't they? Or is yeah. this... They do it again, and they're always good value. None of those films I've seen, other than Private Life, because you know some of them still haven't been released in Britain yet, and or still might not be released. I don't know if Eighth Grade is coming at all ever, mm. um, which is kind of frustrating. But um, 
but yeah, it does seem to be like a very interesting crop. And you'd be interested to see how, if Beale Street can talk, and how that comes out, given the previous Oscar success of, mm. uh, of those involved. Um, and, and especially seeing in terms of awards, I've been seeing that that other film, Green Book, is getting now, it's now moving into its three billboards style backlash. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, is, is that conspicuous by its absence of the Independent Spirit Awards? I'm not even sure if it would qualify because they're very strict on the budget level that a movie can have in order to be nominated. And they've been tightening up in recent years because they got a little backlash in 2012 or 2013 i guess it would have been when silver linings playbook was nominated and won some awards and there Mm -hmm. was that sense of like well i guess they technically made it for less than the budget cut off but that's not really an independent movie that's uh fox searchlight whoever made it you know it was very much a mini major kind of movie and since then i think they've tried to prevent that from happening of a movie coming in that has clear uh studio backing uh or or uh, they clearly only barely qualifies as an independent movie so that they can actually focus on the more interesting stuff and it's, it's also it's a strange slate this year because it's hard to see other than if beale street could talk and maybe hereditary it's hard to see any movies on there that you think have a really good shot at the oscars and hereditary really would be just for tony collette maybe but it does also make you wonder, maybe we're underestimating something like eighth grade getting like a screenplay nominee nomination, uh, you know, for, for Bo Burnham, which would be uh, a, a, re- a really unexpected direction in his career, um, mm. but a great one. Uh, and that's kind of the exciting thing about it is there doesn't really feel as if there are that many movies currently that feel like a lock for the Oscars. The only one I can think of really is A Star Is Born just because it's been so successful. Whereas a lot of the other ones seem to have fizzled out a little bit, most notably First Man, which got very nice reviews and has done okay, but hasn't been kind of like the juggernaut that everyone assumed it would be. Yeah. Mm. I think my only kind of um, concern looking at the Independent Spirit Awards list here is that I remember sort of back in the day, it managed to be so ahead of the curve as well in kind of mm. identifying like who was up and coming. Um, I mean, Brie Larson, for example, won for Short Term 12, Best Actress, well, years before she won for Room, an Oscar. And I don't really see in this list this ahead of the curve thing. I see, I mean, Mm. we've got younger people being recognised, but apart from maybe Christian Malheros for Socrates, everyone's pretty established and that makes me a little bit sad i think i mean mm. don't get me wrong like if tamara jenkins and deborah granick and karen kasama are on list like that's emily catnip like don't get me wrong but <laughs> i can't really see and yeah there's the someone to watch award but i don't i think that's kind of what makes me sad because there's awards that recognize people who are already great and then there's awards that help people be pushed forward into the spotlight who whose work should be recognized and i mean it's mm. not to say that you know I'm, I'm excited that madeline's madeline is kind of given a nod because helena howard's there but it's hard to say i mean yes lynn ramsey's an independent film director but what happens if you were never really here wins i don't know i think i'm just sad because there's not 
as much of a grassroots representation on the list this year. Mm. Yeah. And that and that will not be met elsewhere. Yeah, I guess it also points to the the way in which streaming services like Amazon, which is behind You Were Never Really Here, really have blurred the lines in a major way, more so than even the the idea of like the mini major or the kind of boutique labels within a studio have. Because technically that movie didn't cost a lot of money to make and mm. I guess, you know, in sensibility, you could say it's an independent movie in terms of the people involved and its its style. But it was also released, in part at least, by the largest company in the world. So it yeah. definitely kind of makes you wonder about the state of independent distribution and the question of, well, it, it does it only matter that the movies get made? Like, is that the, the, the positive to take away from it? Mm, yeah so in terms of the awards is this one of the very first of the season yeah it happens in i think february like mid-february so it will be after a lot of guild awards and things like that but it will be a good good solid month before the oscars i think so it's it's happening award season is on us once again Mm. no escaping it and another bit of uh awards news which is is uh, genuinely a very lovely thing uh, although lovely in uh, and also exposes uh, deeper systemic problems, as is often the way these days. But it was announced that Cecily Tyson is going to get a honorary Oscar. Uh, Cecily Tyson, of course, is a veteran African-American actress who was nominated for an Academy Award about 45 years ago and is will now be the first African-American woman to receive a, an honorary Oscar. And on the one level, you think, oh, that's great that they're recognising Cecily Tyson. She's a really fantastic actress. And on the other level, you're thinking, it's 2018. <laughs> mm. How is this How is this taken so long? Yeah, it's one of the... And also, like you brought up before we started, Cordim, with the honorary Oscars shunted to their own separate ceremony now, um, it feels more and more uh, tokenistic as a gesture because we should be making a big deal of this. The Oscars is a big night of backslapping, isn't it, for the mm. film industry? And you'd think that they'd want to slap themselves on the back extra hard for something like this, but no, they just kind of move it off to the side and uh, it does its own thing somewhere else, which is a shame, you know? Mm. But, like, it's good to... Yeah, I'm conflicted in, in the exact way that you said. Uh, it's great, but could be better Mm. yeah and i think that's kind of often what the lifetime achievement oscar does is a we're very sorry will this do Mm. or or the oscars has this history of essentially awarding people with awards that they should have won for other things or that are loaded with meaning like i still think of elizabeth taylor winning for butterfield eight and that was seen as her being like welcomed back into Hollywood society after various things going on in her personal life. It is far too little too late, but if Cecily Tyson wants it, I, you know, she absolutely deserves it. And she has done an incredible, incredible body of work, you know, even before Sounder, even though that's what she kind of became, um, became really well known for. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I obviously but then what you know we can't change (laughs) we can't go back and and change the past so maybe this is 
hopefully a bit better than nothing. I don't know. That's what it is. They, we should bill it as, you know, when you win a lifetime um, achievement Oscar, you should just say, on it, it's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Come on, you know you want one. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll now go on to our main topic, which uh, also ties into a news story from this week, which happened just a couple of days ago, which was that William Goldman passed away. William Goldman, for people who don't know, is probably one of the most well-known and celebrated screenwriters in Hollywood history, certainly of the last sort of uh, 50 years or so. Uh, most famously wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men, for which he won uh, Oscars both times, I believe, and would go on to write or uh, or adapt dozens of movies, often adapting novels, sometimes his own novels, as in the case of The Princess Bride and Marathon Man, and who was also wrote a couple of books about the his job as a uh, his life as a screen screenwriter called uh, What Lie Did I Tell and Adventures in the Screen Trade, and who in in some ways kind of embodies the the for for certainly for for me and I think a whole other generation of, of of film fans the image of a Hollywood screenwriter in in the most positive sense as opposed to like the Joe Esterhauser sense <laughs> it's a very different image of screenwriting right there but. Uh, and so we wanted to talk about him and our, our experiences with his work, but also uh, use that to kind of have a broader conversation about movies about writing and movie writing in general, because it seems to be, uh, it's often depicted, but also often misunderstood, uh, it seems. But but before we get to that, uh, you know, what what are your guys' uh, experience of, of William Goldman's work? I think uh, The Princess Bride would have been my first unknowing um mm. Uh, kind of uh, interaction with Mr. Goldman because um, that was always a firm favourite as as you know as I was younger. But then as I kind of grew up and started to get into films more seriously, especially kind of trying to work my way through that new Hollywood era, which we mentioned mm-hmm. um, yeah. from time to time on this show, um, and you know, you just see his name kind of keep cropping up. And then as you move through the kind of consumer of movies and attempt as I did to try and be a maker of movies, then you find yourself reading, you know, books about script writing and he's always talked about it. And then you read his, I actually started with Which Lie Did I Tell, which is kind of like a book of essays really more than um, Adventures in the Screen Trade, um, which I went back and read um, after that one. And yeah, whilst they're not books about writing, him talking about writing, the lessons you kind of take away from them are invaluable rather than, you know, kind of looking at Sid Field books and and trying to think Mm. about paradigms and inciting incidents and all that kind of nonsense. But yeah, he was just always, you kind of look at his work and then you think, well, he wrote those things and they're all different, but they're all still his. And it, that, that takes a certain something, understanding of story, understanding of character, an understanding on you know how to put those things together, and I didn't know this. I learned that he didn't like the adaptation of All the President's Men, which is kind of mad. But he apparently didn't particularly like it. But it won him an Oscar, which is nice. Apparently, I, I, I do remember reading that Ring Lardner Jr. did not enjoy the version of Mash. Um, that Robert Altman made, which bore no resemblance to the script he wrote, but also won him an Oscar, then he kind of shut up quickly afterwards. Um, (laughs) But William Goldman is someone who um, you can look across a vast body of work and just say, well, you know, 
you've written not only like three or four classic movies, but three or four of the greatest scripts ever written, which is quite something. You know, some people don't even get one or they get one and they're out. But, you know, he, you know, just that list of all the president's men, Butch and Sundance and Princess Bride. That's a that's a pretty good short list. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. For me, it's absolutely Princess Bride. I think, Matt, you and I have actually had a very similar journey with Goldman. And Mm -hmm. I was gifted his books from concerned parties when I was like, I want to do this whole film business malarkey. And he was just so accessible and warm. And the mm. thing that absolutely struck me about those books was they so could have easily been, oh, this, this you know, terrible town and tales of mistrust and deceit and, and really, like, vicious. But he seemed to really embrace this... The, the best of it, it seems like he was he was a core of the best of it. Like, he was an artist working with other artists and there were kooky people along the way and funny situations, but it felt very magnanimous. I think he always seemed to find the humour in a situation and, and there was never too much, like, finger-pointing or blaming, which made him really wise. And The Princess Bride remains one of my absolute favourite films ever. And I think it just really stuck with me because it was introduced to me when I was poorly. So I was Fred Savage. Um, <laughs> and I wish Peter Falk um, had come and be my, my granddad. And hmm. it's just such a beautiful, funny... It, it In terms of tone, it manages to do that like big sweep of being a proper family film because there, were, there was mm-hmm. little tons that went over my head as a kid but coming back to it there's something there's literally something for everyone um including a peter cook cameo hello um (laughs) i'm I'm there i've still never actually read the book which i will absolutely definitely do and i i love the princess bride's depiction of love and and also one of the best depictions of imposter syndrome i think i've ever seen before the term was really coined or in the public consciousness with Princess Buttercup and her dream of of being shouted down as Lady Muck. Mm. The thing that has really struck me in the the past few days is people rushing to share stories of how wonderful he was to them. And there are a couple in particular. One, which was from the set of Marathon Man, where Olivier basically says, it's easier for me to cut in and get this direction and get this line right if we change this line around. Goldman was like oh no absolutely and he changed it and he learned from it and he was never he was always looking to how he could make things better and understand how his part played as part of a greater whole he was a part of a mighty sum of of different things and then also um a woman on twitter Kathleen Jones her, her her tweet's been doing the rounds where he was her hero and she watched The Princess Bride while struggling with um, cystic fibrosis treatment, and they became pen pals. He he met her through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, took her for dinner, mm. was really lovely, asking her all these really, like, questions about her illness and how she was dealing with it and, and things about it in an inquisitive, not intrusive way. She's very uh, um, quick to emphasise. And they just had this correspondence, and he just seems like... He seemed like a really great human that wasn't 
above anyone else. And I think had this a kind a kind of deep melancholy that he was probably always fighting because I think one of the most beautiful lines from the Princess Bride is um, "Life is pain, Princess," and anyone who's trying to tell you otherwise is selling you something. <laughs> um, which I think is a really a really beautiful maxim and one to bear in mind all the more just now. Mm. One mm. one that was in a kids film. Let's remember yes. a kid a kids film in which the main character is tortured to death <laughs> halfway through. Life is pain near death. <laughs> near death. Oh no, he, let's he, be specific. Oh no. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was only a little bit dead. Um, yeah. Oh. Uh, the my the the story that I uh, really liked in terms of the the stories that are being shared was shared. Uh, I think it's it's uh, something from. What Lie Did I Tell or Adventures in the Screen Trading. It was shared by a friend of the show, Zoe Jays, on Twitter. And it was the story of him writing the screenplay for Misery. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Misery, which uh, I haven't read in, in quite a long time, but I believe the main character gets his legs chopped off or his feet chopped off. That's how he is... He is uh, hobbled at the towards the end of the book as he has his feet removed by um the by annie annie wilkes and that was in the screenplay that uh william goldman wrote he wrote that he, he was very faithful to the book and then he handed it over to rob reiner who was the director and rob reiner changed it and said instead what would happen is he would be uh, he would have his ankles broken uh in uh, which is how it ended up in the final movie as anyone who's seen it will know because uh, it's pretty unforgettable <laughs> scene in in movie history, and in the story that uh, William Goldman is telling, he talks about you know phoning them up and raging against them and saying you know like how how could they do this? This ruins the story, and you know how he felt that it was completely the wrong thing to do, and then admitting they were completely right. If they if he had chopped the feet off, it would have been too much, and having her break his ankles was actually a much stronger choice. And it, I think it does speak to his uh his knowledge of his own abilities but also his knowledge of his role in the whole things like he it doesn't sound like he was there saying i've won two oscars what the hell have you ever do or whatever which he would have been in in his rights to say but more being a kind of spirited collaborator with these people that he works with and then once he realizes that they're set on a thing just kind of accepting it and when he realizes that they were in the right being fully able to own up to it, which again, like you say, Emily, I think is is a display, a, a demonstration of his wisdom as a as a creative uh, partner in all of the movies they worked on. Mm. And it's the interesting thing about that story is that he goes on to say that had he had Annie cut off James Khan's feet, mm. then she wouldn't have been likable as a character, right? Or she yeah. would have she would have gone too far, and this is a character that already has gone too far. But the the role of a writer in a film is is to I think it must be one of the hardest things to do to watch everything, everyone and everyone. You've got no power whatsoever to trample all over your stuff and change everything on the fly to suit them, and have other people rewrite it and kind of punch it up and 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 do what they want, but. To be someone who's won two Oscars, to admit and learn at the stage when he must have been like in his 60s, to mm. learn that that moment was a detriment to the character 
is and not just like the machinations of a plot or trying to work around a special effect or something like that is you know what we can all aspire to no matter how experienced you are and and you know what you've done you are always still learning and he was adamant that he was right and then he realized he wasn't and that is mm. how you collaborate artistically with other people yeah so we'll go on to kind of a broader discussion of movies about writing what what are some of your favorites for me the one that immediately leapt to mind because it's, it's probably one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time is the coen brothers barton fink mm. which is a really funny and incredibly dark and distressing movie <laughs> about the experience of uh, a writer in this case played by uh, jo uh, john turturro going to hollywood who has had some success on broadway with these kind of social issue plays being kind of wined and dined by studio heads who keep telling him that they want him to write a boxing pick that has this has that barton fink feeling to it as they say it and then over the course of the movie him one befriending someone who may be satan <laughs> played by john goodman um but also him kind of discovering that his pretensions to artistic greatness don't mean anything within the kind of the bowels of the film industry and learning that his desire to kind of write the great boxing movie is uh, a wrestling movie actually I think it might be uh is completely at odds with what he has been hired to do and uh, seems to be well certainly it was the, the coen brothers kind of meditating on their own sense of writer's block at the time because they wrote it and miller's crossing at the same time and barton fink was its kind their kind of um side project to kind of help them work through all of the machinations of miller's miller, uh, miller's crossing's script but it also seems to be them ruminating on their own experiences in hollywood uh, even in their early days kind of feeling like maybe they felt they had entered into the industry with kind of slightly uh, wider eyes than they should have. It, and it's, it, like I said, being a writer must be a very hard job on a film mm. because everyone tramples on your work and, and, and destroys your what you've been doing and your vision and everything because it's at the service of something bigger. Being a writer in studio system Hollywood <laughs> was must have been way worse. And the Coen brothers do a great job in Barton Fink of capturing that kind of idea um, that he is you know, truly at the uh, the whim of all these other forces around him and, and it's completely got no control over it whatsoever. Mm. I I think my favourite film about a writer and writing is probably uh, Wonder Boys. Oh. Um, because it also does a great job of kind of disassembling that kind of like tortured male kind of past his prime type writer, I guess. Um, um, but it's also like super funny. Um, and, uh, he's also, I think if we ever do, we've already done an, an episode about adaptation probably about seven years ago. Cause I think it was like one of the, the first kind of 10 episodes we did. But yeah. if I ever, we ever do another one, um, that is an excellent case study on how to adapt a book because it captures so much of the spirit and some of the lines in the, in the movie are so kind of like perfect they must you thought they must have come from the book but you read the book and you realize that they haven't and he's just done such a damn good job of capturing mm. the uh the uh the, the patter and the, the rhythm of it all and that you know some of the similar dialogue in the book is way too wordy to work in film or in a screenplay and and you know this is just like a punchier version of it without being like a facsimile but yeah i think that's a really good 
whilst it does have a, a, a rather pat ending, um, it is um, still, I think, probably why my favourite about writing in general and also the idea that you have, like, little superstitions with how you write um, mm. when, you know, he wears his wife's dressing gown uh, to write in and someone asks him why and he says, there is a story behind it, but it's not very interesting. <laughs> just little bits like that this kind of old hang dog and michael michael douglas's um best performance i think ever which also brings me to a point about if you if you read william goldman's book which lie did i tell there's an amazing section where he talks about the film the ghost in the darkness um Mm. which he says in the book uh, if i remember this correctly the two most amazing real stories he ever heard that he felt immediately compelled to make a film in out of were Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the the store the story of the the hole in the wall gang, is that what they're called? Um, yeah. uh, and the second one was The Ghost in the Darkness. A true story yeah. about two lions that kind of ate a bunch of people. And <laughs> he said, I am doing it a disservice there, I realise. <laughs> um uh, um, and he said that like he he harbored for a long time wanting to do this and he did it and he said that the 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 thing I remember most from reading that book, bit in the book is that he it talks a lot about good de- or bad decisions made by good people for the wrong reasons and he says that Michael Douglas is a, like a wonderful actor and a really amazing producer but he was trying to do both at the same time on that film. And mm. there's a whole bit about how Michael Douglas makes a change in a line of dialogue to give his character some story back. Now you give him a bit of business and he does it, but it's completely at the service of his own character, therefore his own ego in real life. And, you know, actually completely takes away from the film. And it's something, if you watch the film, you would never even notice it. But once you read the book, uh, which side did I tell? And then read about it. Then you realize it completely ruins his character, <laughs> like completely ruins <laughs> it by giving him this little bit of backstory, just like kills this mystery and kills this idea that he's this kind of like mythic hunter of lions and animals. Um, but it's all at the service of Michael Douglas thinking it's a good idea. And maybe he even admits now it's probably a bad idea or even maybe never even thinks about the ghost in the darkness um, ever, <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing. A film that the, like the film, the ghost in the darkness is, it's a nothing film. You know what I mean? It's, it's Jaws, but with lions. And, um, you know, but the idea that it came from a real super exciting true story that was amazing and just kind of got filtered through that Hollywood system to just being a mediocre Val Kilmer vehicle. Uh, the way that happens is super interesting because the, the, the thing about Goldman's books is they're not all winners. All the films he talks about, especially in Which Lie Did I Tell, that they're... Some of them are bad movies and some of them mm. are, you know, films that, that didn't work for whatever reason. And the, the books are really great at kind of discussing why those reasons are and why people struggle to do anything in Hollywood because there's so many obstacles in the way to get an idea out. But anyway, Roundabout Story, Wonder Boys, that's a good film about writing, isn't it? I adore mm. Wonder Boys, Matt. I'm entirely with you on that one. It also features possibly my one of my favourite exchanges ever, which is between Rip Torn and Katie Holmes. And it's said in, she's kind of listening to him at this party after he's given a keynote speech. Uh, I think it's Michael Douglas who who walks past and kind of tosses in that uh, she's actually a writer. And Rip Torn says, oh, you're a writer. I didn't know. Hmm. And she replies, you didn't ask. Hmm. Yes, Wonder Boy's absolutely amazing. I have a few here that I, that I really like. I think it... There's kind of a double bill to be had of 
are now Dame Emma Thompson, as we discussed last week. But Mm -hmm. I think she manages to portray two very different kinds of writers very, very well in Stranger Than Fiction and also Mm. Saving Mr. Banks. Um, oh yes she i mean the thing is i couldn't i couldn't get through stranger than fiction but i absolutely adore her in her pajamas Mm. smoking at her typewriter cursing everything and and being bossed around by queen latifah yeah i mean i could could just watch that as a spin-off that's basically what it looks like in my brain is is emma thompson in her pajamas smoking wandering around a very empty apartment with queen latifah telling her to get the fuck on with things that's so i so i Maybe I see my too much of myself in this. But I couldn't really get the film, but I loved her as a writer. And then Saving Mr. Banks as well, where she's playing P.L. Travers, is so moving and how personal P.L. Travers' experience was in terms of creating Mary Poppins. And I think the way that Emma Thompson manages to represent what is essentially a very internal (laughs) process on the surface Mm. so well and how she manages to allow her something that's like her story basically she allows her story to become a kind of public property and that she is healed by it once more she's actually manages to find a resolution by having her own story told back to her in a way and I really love that. And it's interesting because it's too different. Stranger Than Fiction is the process of actually trying to bloody write the thing and finish it and, and like, like actually kill your darlings. Whereas Saving Mr. Banks is about kind of letting go of the story being yours and it being attached to your ego and your process and actually allowing the story to breathe and become its own thing. So it's two very different writers and two very different stages of a writing process but I find them both like completely gripping. Mm. I think I find Saving Mr. Banks to be a very interesting movie because on the one hand, like it's very easy to read it as kind of like Disney uh, apologia in the sense of you cast Tom Hanks as Walt Disney (laughs) and you kind of sand down a lot of the edges of him and his relationship to P.L. Travers and, you know, the... Uh, and some of the biographical details to kind of shift around a little bit. But it's almost like the central conflict is so compelling that even if they are trying to make that, they still end up making a movie that does feel very critical of Disney's kind of like attempt to commodify, you know, this very personal story and make it universal, but also offering, you know, the, the flip side to that, which is the entire generations of people. I mean, you and I... Uh, Emily have talked about crying over the trailer for Mary Poppins Returns oh, yeah. and you know, talking about just the, the way in which that story has resonated so much further than the books necessarily would have because of the Disney movie and, and what they what they did with it. And it's one of those things where, you know, the scene where uh, Disney flies to London to talk to P.L. Travers and starts talking to her about her father and, you know, the the notion that... Where he, where he basically lays out, you know, she didn't come to save the children, she came to save the father and all this sort of stuff. Like, that scene probably isn't a thing that actually happened in real life, but it's so powerful in the moment. And I think a large part of that comes down to the fact that Emma Thompson does this really amazing job of 
playing P.L. Travers as a, a somewhat prickly person, which mm. I think is is kind of true to how she was. I mean, you hear it on the tapes they play over the end credits of her talking to the the, the, the Sherman brothers and everything. But at the same time, keeping your sympathy because you know, you know, even if she is cruel to a lot of the people around her, uh, sometimes unnecessarily so, it's she also deeply cares about this story and you believe so much that she cares about this story and what it means to her and what it could mean uh, to see it boulderized in the way that she af- she she's afraid Disney will do. On the subject of writers who are women being portrayed on screen who aren't necessarily likable or who do very mm. complicated things, that actually brings me on very neatly onto two of my other absolute favourite films about writers where, yeah, they don't necessarily do an awful lot of writing but them being writers seems to be key um, to their to their identity and their personality, and that is uh, Tamara Drew and Young Adult. Oh mm. yes, I love Young Adult. Um, so, so much. Tamara Drew, I think I love in particular because it goes to show when you have a bunch of writers on a retreat, exactly the lengths they will go to to avoid doing any writing. <laughs> also features Gemma Arterton being amazing why she's not Hmm. bigger globally is bizarre to me but so much of it is her kind of as as a writer kind of living in her head and like the various difference of relationships that she manages to get herself into and the way that she kind of comes back to her hometown it is of course based on Tamara Drew by Posey Simmons which is itself based on Thomas Hardy far from the madding crowd Um, but it manages Mm -hmm. to be incredibly funny and quite moving in places and and farcical but then young adult as well has a similar writer comes back to hometown is trying to figure out certain things in terms of relationships and seems to be stuck in the way that she in her in her own series like there's this kind of dual identity where she hasn't really grown up hence young adult like the irony of that she's written young adult books and can speak to that audience very well even though it seems to be like a sweet valley high style series maybe a bit fluff but still quite successful and yet she is stuck in some way and is a is a rogue element and to and to be fair actually uh gone girl as well and might be slightly Mm. tenuous but um amy herself is quite a feisty one and uh, it's actually, you know, who who has the narrative? She is a writer herself, and the diary is absolutely um, tantamount to how she how she navigates and manipulates the world. Women writers don't necessarily tend to get the best rap. I'm <laughs> I'm suddenly realizing, but I still like them because I think the nice thing about things like Tomorrow Drew and Young Adult in particular are that we do see these more complex women characters um writing seems to be a way of pushing yourself of of being able to make your character be somewhat an independent woman and a career woman um but still sort of creative enough or um i don't know that that kind of reminds me of um have you ever seen the jane campion movie an angel at my table no i haven't no well, it's. I, I guess it's technically a TV series. It's like a, a three-part TV series that was released worldwide as a movie. And 
that is all about the writer Janet Frame, who was a New Zealand poet. And each third of the movie or each episode is all about her life. You know, she starts off as a very kind of uh, growing up in a very poor, impoverished part of, of New Zealand in a very poor working class family. And as she she begins to write and, you know, she is kind of made fun of it initially, but keeps on doing it is eventually at one point institutionalized because uh, she doesn't really conform to the ideas of what a woman is meant to do in New Zealand in the early part of the 20th century and her writing ends up not only giving her an independent life but it ends up it literally ends up saving her I don't know how true this is to reality but in the, the film she is scheduled to be lobotomized when her first collection of poetry is published and that is basically that basically stops them from lobotomizing her because they realize, oh, this would be the worst fucking thing in the world to do if this woman who's written this collection of poetry that is widely acclaimed ends up being lobotomized. And uh, yeah, that, that's just what that that reminds me of the idea of a woman writer who in that one is actually depicted, I would say, of the, the, the depictions that have been mentioned. That's probably the most positive, like there aren't really that many negative things about Janet Frame. She is kind of depicted as someone who just goes through the absolute ringer and then comes out of it, you know, as a kind of more or less a successful, independent, healthy human being. But uh, that that kind of... What, what you were saying about pursuing some form of independence through writing, it, it kind of reminded me of that movie. Mm. Something, another um, more recent film about, um, about a writer is uh, Patterson. Um, mm. featuring Adam Driver and the best dog performance ever. Um, mm-hmm. R.I.P. Strong words. Uh, it, <laughs> have, have, you, have you seen this doggo? I mean, don't put your hand anywhere near it, Matt. <laughs> I know what you're like, but Nelly, R.I.P. It's uh, genuinely, she acts everyone off the screen. But Adam Driver as a bus driving poet. Mm. Uh, you're, you're a very gentle Jim Jarmusch film that is about routine and rhythm and a kind of a love of the work rather than necessarily gaining a certain sense of fame I wasn't as crazy about it as I wanted to be again just love that dog the (laughs) the girlfriend is probably one of the worst two-dimensional oh she's she's so arty she paints stuff in black and white oh they're sort of perfect together and I can't really tell Mm. if Jarmusch loves her or hates her probably a bit of both but there's some really it's it's lovely to actually see the physical act of someone handwriting out a poem but also saying it like reciting it um the kind of every time you see a poem it'll be either written on the screen text transposed onto the screen but Adam Driver's always kind of reciting it as Patterson as well and there's something quite lovely about what is essentially quite a gentle film about someone's relationship to their own writing. Mm. Going to what I was saying about Wonder Boy is about a film that does a good job of kind of deconstructing that kind of incredibly masculine trait of uh, believing your own kind of uh, uh, gump, I guess. Uh, Listen Up, Philip, there was a a few years ago. Mm. Oh, God. Um, That is a excoriating look at a writer who is a total dick. Um, mm. and um, watching him kind of come apart is uh, very pleasurable to watch. But I also thought about a few films where 
uh, some of the characters in it are technically writers, but they're more kind of functions of the plot. But they're both great films. The two I could think of were The Shining, obviously, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, he doesn't do that much writing. Let's be honest. In that, he has um, one. He has one spurt. Yeah, it's, it's repetitive. His novel's pretty <laughs> repetitive. And then Sunset Boulevard, um, yeah. uh, kind of, uh, they're just kind of um, functions to get the plot moving, um, but also very good. Mm. Yeah, I had Sunset Boulevard on mine as well. I think it 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 that again kind of similar to maybe Barton Fink. It does feel like Sunset Boulevard is Billy Wilder really kind of trying to work through some things <laughs> uh about his his ideas towards Hollywood. And and I think that movie it does have some scenes of writing in that one of the subplots of that movie is him co-writing that screenplay with a, a woman he meets who obviously isn't Nora Desmond um mm. at the studio lot and I, I always found those scenes to be very very lively and fun and I think I'll, I'll probably Wilder and uh, I think I can't remember who would have been his co-writer on that one but he had a co-writer who like he worked with throughout the the 40s and 50s until they had a big falling out and they, I think there he's really capturing their relationship where they're both sat in an office together and they're firing off ideas and lines off of each other. And it always struck me as feeling very truthful in its depiction of a collaborative partnership like that, where two people are problem solving and throwing ideas out of each other and kind of slowly working their way towards a solution and, you know, a, a story that they're trying to write. And I think that is in in the midst of you know this otherwise very bleak depiction of you know the people who have been pushed to the sides in hollywood and are kind of going mad that always struck me as a surprisingly hopeful depiction of the process mm. more recently um and again uh maybe a not hugely successful but i still found very enjoyable and quite entertaining and as biopics go definitely more in the spirit of the person that it was trying to represent than your standard telling looking at you bohemian rhapsody a few <laughs> a futile and stupid gesture uh which oh, yeah. follows doug kenny who was the co-founder of national lampoon magazine and the thing that i love about that i really got into thing that i really loved about the film was there was so much dynamism and this kind of gung-ho two fingers up satirical bent but then you do see what it actually takes to run a magazine and actually how difficult that can be and and for a film that is essentially about quite a tragic life it manages to really get across the impact that Kenny made on his friends and colleagues Mm. Uh, I think one that I've I've always really loved is American Splendor, which is I think similar similarly playful, uh, formally to uh, a futile and stupid de- uh, gesture. Uh, and what I always really liked about that was its depiction of Harvey Pekar both as the character and as the real version of himself who shows up in the movie. Yeah, is that sense of artists that the the danger of strip mining your own life for material and the effect that that can have because obviously harvey Pekar's american splendor comics were very autobiographical most notably uh our cancer year the the collection where he wrote about his uh battle with cancer and i think it's really it, it's a really smart movie in the way that it 
depicts his process by saying, oh, he takes things that happened in his real life and he turns them into comics, but also kind of subtly acknowledging the massaging that happens around that and the editing that, you know, he's not just taking things straight out of real life and just transposing them. He is putting his point of view on it. He is offering his interpretation. And I think it's a very smart movie about the way, A, a about strip mining your own life, but also about the distance that exists even with the most autobiographical work. Yeah. Because even if you are literally just taking things that happen to you and turning them into into art, you are still going to be kind of editing and changing things around to best suit whatever your purpose is. If it's to make people laugh, if it's to make people cry, you are going to kind of be messing with the raw materials in some way. I think um, one that we haven't mentioned, um, which is a good one to kind of talk about in terms of like how reflexive it is, is adaptation. Because, mm. um, oh. I mean, that's a film about a writer trying to write with his fictional twin brother <laughs> <laughs> adapting a book that is real <laughs> with real people in it. And then there are pretend people. It's quite a confusing film if you mm. uh, try and explain it. But that's a very good movie in terms of talking about the idea of disappearing down a rabbit hole whilst in the pursuit of something that's unattainable. Yeah, and I, I think it, it certainly feels like Charlie Kaufman really trying to dig deep onto his own process and really blowing up his own neuroses in a major way. Mm. And I think it, it literalises in a really funny way the battle between wanting to write art and wanting to be successful which i think also william goldman kind of talked about a little bit uh you know when he talked about when he would take a project he would always ask himself two questions you know can i make something good of this and will it make me any money and the 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 former was always more important to him like he said he would never take on a project if he didn't think he could make something good out of the material uh but but adaptation is much more in the two brothers charlie and donald you do really see that that idea of Corpman wondering, you know, if I maybe just wrote the dumbest shit, maybe I'd be really successful. <laughs> uh, if I wrote the absolute worst possible derivative shit, you know, would I live in a big house and, you know, have all of the things that I can't get writing the kind of the more obtuse stuff that I work on all the time. And I think it's it's a really hugely enjoyable movie for that, for him taking that tension and then just saying, what if I have one, make myself a fake brother who I will also credit on my actual script mm-hmm. so a fictional person gets nominated for an Oscar uh, and had them just embody all of my worst fears about myself. Mm. Was it, wasn't, didn't adaptation come out of being genuinely asked to adapt The Orchid Thief? Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. So it's a film about a man trying to adapt something in real life. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's folding in on itself a bit too much now. <laughs> I've, kind of, I've lost track of where I am. Yeah, you're going to find out you're a character in adaptation next. Mm, it's quite likely. And we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for us this week? For me, it is um, the BFI have an incredible online library that's free to watch incredible stuff from various different archives. Um, But recently, really excitingly, they've just released a new collection um, called Comedy Genius. um, And it's a broad umbrella, but it stretches back into 
silent films from the 1900s and films that have just been put on their online archive um, from about the 70s or 80s that have recently just been found. But it's incredible. You've got full-length films, half-hour shorts, two-minute kind of flashes in the pan, but just the most incredible wealth of stuff. There's stuff from Pythons, there's stuff from Leonard Rossiter, who's my particular favourite, just lots of stalwarts from comedy, and it's all for free! So I recommend everyone to get to the BFI player and have a gander and hopefully a good laugh as well. Fantastic. Matt, what have you got to recommend for us? Well, talking about books and books about writing uh, and writers and stuff, uh, I'm going to recommend something pretty obvious. Uh, I'm going to recommend the Robert McKee book, uh, Story. Mm. If you've ever kind of um, encountered that, he's a strange guy, Robert McKee, and uh, he wrote a book called Story in the late 90s and and made a career out of touring the seminar about the concept of story and how to do it and it's a weird book because like, it's not like a Sidfield book where you pick it up and you talk about structure and how to write and how many pages it should be and what it is it's just general concepts and ideas about what makes a good story in the screenwriting context and the weird thing is is Robert McKee has literally no experience of being a screenwriter mm-hmm. he wrote like I think he wrote like Columbo or Kojak or something back in the day uh, for TV, never really done any films, but he just kind of came out with this amazingly succinct way of talking about story and understanding it with no right or wrong answers. And to prove it, he is a character in <laughs> in adaptation, <laughs> played by Brian Cox. He is <laughs> visited by uh, the characters played by Nick Cage to help him through uh, the the writer's block that he's experiencing and the troubles he's having ad- adapting his book. And he is told not to use a voiceover because that's very lazy. Um, which is one of McKee's apparent bugbears. But the book is actually really super useful. Um, you're not going to be able to pick it up and learn how to write a screenplay, but you will kind of read it and having some of the examples he picks to illustrate ideas and concepts about story, it's unbeatable. It's a great book. Cool. I'm going to recommend a movie that debuted on Netflix this past Friday. It is called Cam and it is directed by uh, Daniel Goldharbour. It is a horror movie produced by Blumhouse in I think their first Netflix original production. I know that they've done some stuff with Hulu otherwise, but it's a movie about a cam girl played by Madeline Brewer who is, you know, very ambitious within the cam girl scene cam girls for people who don't know are women who perform on line on streaming video online for people who give them money to you know do do things uh, on on camera for them and in the i'm glad movie, you explained that ed because i had no idea at the start of the movie she is kind of rising up the ranks on this cam girl site and she at one point gets locked out of her account and then the reason behind why that happened is kind of the grist of what most of the movie is about. And uh, so I can't really say anything further than that because that's where the story happens. But what I think is really great about the movie is, one, it's incredibly unsettling, both in its actual role, as in its actual function as a horror movie. There are some moments in it that are, are, are very disturbing, but also because it's a really smart depiction of what it's like to live on the internet (laughs) or particularly if you try and make a living on the internet you know there's a lot of stuff in it about the kind of desperate performative dance of 
trying to survive because people like you online and are willing to give you money because they like the thing that you are good at and that in and of itself i think if you've watched any twitch streams in particular i find uh, as i often do uh that that really kind of hit home for me and, and kind of made me reconsider that whole platform and it's just i think of a, a really and also it's uh written by uh a woman called isa mazai who was a cam girl herself so it's a movie that has a lot of authenticity to it it's very uh sex worker positive in the sense that it depicts sex workers as real people who have concerns and also acknowledges their very precarious place in society you know doing something that is legal but is frowned upon by law enforcement so if things start going wrong for you they'll probably just assume you're a prostitute and won't try and help you as happens in the movie and i think it's a incredibly good exciting and relevant movie that uh, is available on Netflix, so anyone could watch it, and it's it's really great. It's, it wound up being one of my favourite movies of the year uh, so far, and it's really, really fantastic. Mm. If you've enjoyed this week's episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM. Uh, you can listen to us on Spotify, if you like, if you use that platform, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. But for now, rest well and dream of large women. <laughs> <laughs>